Tonight, we're going to shift kind of the other end of the friendship spectrum with, uh, with more scripted friendships. And what I mean by that is the friendships we think a lot more about. Best friends, besties, bromances, whatever other people have dubbed your relationships with people, uh, other folks of the same gender, what are those supposed to look like? What could they look like? What's the potential of those kind of relationships? If you're a note taker, you might want to write this down, but this is where we're going in, these, in the passages we're about to read. Number one, the point of friendship is not friendship. So we're going to talk about the point of friendship. The point of friendship is not friendship. The second thing is the glue of friendship is covenant. And the third thing we'll talk about is the goal of friendship is showing Christ. So we'll talk about the point, the glue, and the goal uh, in the next few minutes. But before we do, we have to have a little fireside chat. Put in the same sentence the words intimate, loving, affectionate, deeply personal, along with words like two men or two women. And where does our mind immediately go? We've eroticized all of these things. We're at a cultural moment where we're not even capable of having a conversation about what two guys' relationships should look like or two girls' relationships, or or multiple girls' relationships could look like together. Um, Because we're at a place in history right now where we view all of life and we view history through a lens of eroticism, and particularly homoeroticism. Here's my point. Have you run into a professor yet that has tried to prove to you that Shakespeare was gay because he wrote poems to other men? Have you heard perhaps a teacher somewhere along the way uh, try to convince you that these, uh, this band of brothers, if you ever saw the HBO series 10 years ago, that those guys were gay because of the way that they had talked about each other deeply affectionately, the way the mere mention of Captain Winter's name would, would reduce 75-year-old hardened war veterans to a heaving, weeping mess. Um, Jonathan and David's relationship in the Bible is one of the most famous relationships, and it is read through that lens too. And I wanted to mention this to you up front because we're about to read things that to you will seem more on the end of something sexual is maybe here, or something erotic is going on. We have to remember our place and our year. Nobody else in human history read this passage the way we do. And so we have to do an extra careful job tonight of, to take off our cultural blinders and set them aside. Uh, because even anything but Western culture, anybody else in the world wouldn't read the passage the way our ears as Americans hear this. Uh, Sean's old campus minister at um, Stanford, I love this quote. He said, um, as it goes with world cultures, American culture is kind of the 13-year-old boy giggling in the corner, while the rest of the world is maturely talking about a lot of these things. And I think there's some truth to that. Um, And so I wanted to just kind of mention that ahead of time kind of stuff. So why don't you stand up, we'll pray, we'll read, and we'll start talking about this. I'm going to stop about halfway through because I trust your literacy. And uh, the first part of this is particularly what we're going to zero in on tonight. uh, And I'll refer to the rest later on. This is the word of the Lord. This is from the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Books primarily dealing with Saul and David, Old Testament. This is, as soon as Jonathan had finished speaking to Saul, who's his father, Jonathan is the crown prince, his father is king of Israel, King Saul. As as soon as Jonathan had finished speaking to his father, the king, Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. 
And Jonathan loved David as his own soul. And Saul took him that day, that being David, and wouldn't let David return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him even as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and he gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the whole men of war. Basically, your secretary of defense, David. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Quick interlude between what happens next. If you're the king and your secretary of defense is kicking butt around the world and all your people are like, this guy's awesome, uh, and you're a jealous guy, what do you start thinking? I need to remove this David figure because he's making me look really bad. That's where we pick up 1 Samuel 19, the first few verses. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all of his servants. This little cabinet meeting is happening. And they said, you should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. So be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place. Hide yourself. And I'll go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I'll speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I'll tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father. Let's stop there and let's pray. And we'll, we'll kind of refer to some of the other parts of this in a few minutes. Lord Jesus, Jasmine repeated your words earlier. Words that came out of your mouth. She said again tonight. Words where you said, greater love has no one than this. That he lay his life down for his brothers. And Lord, she also said your words where you said, you don't call the people in this room servants or errand boys and errand girls. You call us friend. Come tonight and help us know what that means, that our God has made us his friends and called us his friends. We need your help and we pray this in your holy name. Amen. Thanks. You can take a seat. So as I think about it, I think the biggest mistake most of us make in our friendships, when we're thinking about our best friends or our closest friendships or our lack of those friendships and our desire to want to have better friends, the biggest mistake most of us make is the most fundamental mistake you can make with friendship. And that is this, to make friendship all about friendship. Um, friendship is something that it has to be about something. You can't make friendship about friendship and you can't make friendship about getting other people to meet your emotional needs or uh, be a fun, fun person to hang out with or kind of give you some stability, some social stability. Uh, when we make friendship about friendship, it ends up imploding because it has no core to it. It's like a jellyfish that doesn't have a skeleton. It's like a solar system that doesn't have a sun that orders all of the other planets. Uh, it's like a bike wheel that has spokes but no hub to support the weight of the spokes. Friendship has to be about something. It can't be about itself, right? C.S. Lewis uh, brilliantly puts this in his book, uh, The Four Loves. He says this. He says, Friendship arises out of a mere companionship when two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or some interest 
or even a taste which the other folks do not share, and which until that moment each of these now friends believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of a beginning friendship would be something like, what, you too? I thought I was the only one who dealt with that. He goes on to say, uh, in this kind of friendship love, do you love me really means, do you see the world the way I see the world? Do you understand what life is like for me? He pushes on a few paragraphs and then he, he catches himself and he says, wait a second. Because we are people who tend to make our friendships all about our friendships. Friendship is all about kind of being intimate with other people or having awesome conversations or something. Lewis catches us and he says, we try to make friendship love into something that more like a husband and a wife might have. He said relationship or or sexual love or romantic love, it focuses on the relationship itself. Girls, you know this better than the guys. Guys, if you're in a relationship, you're learning this. When you're in a relationship, you talk about the relationship, right? Uh, When you're dating someone, you talk about your dating relationship. When you're engaged to someone, when you're married to someone, you talk about your marriage. People in that kind of relationship talk about their relationship. But friends don't sit around all the time talking about their friendship, if it's a healthy, functional friendship. And Lewis goes on and he says this about it. He says, we picture lovers face-to-face, focusing on themselves. But he said, friends, we picture them side by side and both looking in some common direction. Their eyes look ahead, not at each other. That is why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make friends. The very condition of having friends, the very condition that has to be there for us to have a friend is that we should want something else besides friends. Where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be, I see nothing And I don't care much about the truth. I only want a friend. No friendship can reside. Though affection, of course, might come there. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about. And friendship must be about something. Even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. Does that make sense with what we started talking about? Friendship has to be about something. Friendship is two people standing side by side, looking in the same direction, going towards the same thing, whether it's you have the same major or you came from the same town uh, or you both like the same TV show or the same kind of a music. But friendship is about something other uh, than the friendship. And that's what Lewis is talking about. And so let's go back to the passage real quick with Lewis in our mind. What, were, what, were, what was David and Jonathan's relationship about? If you didn't hear the C.S. Lewis quote, you might be tempted to read this passage and be like, their relationship is all about their relationship. It was love at first sight. They saw each other and behold, the soul of Jonathan was a net to the soul of David. You're like, tell me that's not something crazy going on there. What did their relationship revolve around? What common pursuit, interest, or passion knit David and Jonathan together. If you have a Bible or a phone and you swipe back to 1 Samuel 17, the chapter right before here, this is the story of David, the little runt of the litter, being called out from the back of the crowd to defeat Israel's enemy, Goliath. And and you know how the story goes. David, this tiny little runt, brings down this towering um, 
military warrior uh, with one blow. That's what happens there. But David trusts the Lord in that. David trusted that his God had his back. David believed and he knew his God. Jonathan, for his sake in this passage, also was about similar things. If David's life had begun to revolve around the Lord, David loved the Lord. He trusted the Lord. He knew the Lord. He loved the Lord. Jonathan also trusted the Lord, knew the Lord, loved the Lord. His life revolved around the Lord's. How do you know this? How does Jonathan, how do, how do, we, how do we see Jonathan proving what his life is about? Well, I mentioned earlier that Jonathan is the son of the king, which means he's the crown prince, which means he's like Prince Charles. What do you think the odds are Prince Charles is going to hand over the throne, the crown, the authority, the power, and the prestige of king of the English or the British Empire to one of his friends? And, and the British monarchy is symbolic. It really doesn't have any power. This king called every shot. He had every chariot, every horse, every piece of military might. That belonged to Jonathan. It was his. He was the heir. And now you see him, what his response is when God says, Jonathan, David is my anointed one. David is going to lead Israel. David is a man after my heart. Those of you who watch shows like House of Cards, Game of Thrones, or pretty much anything on today, these shows are about the same thing human history has always been about. When you have a threat to your power, when you have a threat to your attention or your hold, you eliminate them. And so politicians find ways to kind of eliminate competitors. Kings back in the day found convenient ways to kill or pillage their competitors. Jonathan should have killed David. If you understand the context, you would be shocked at what happens around verse 2 and verse 3 because what should have happened is Jonathan sees a threat to his ambitions, his power, his influence. And he, as the, as the crown prince, has the authority to take David aside and to kill him. But Jonathan is so tuned in to the Lord, how God works, who he is, how he's going to have Jonathan's back and David's, that he relinquishes all of that. And not begrudgingly, but happily. This is what it means when he says in verse 4, Jonathan stripped himself of the royal robes that was on him. He gave it to David. He stripped himself of his military armor, even his sword, the symbol and the instrument of his power, and his bow and his belt. And David, by virtue of that, everywhere he went out, was successful. Jonathan and David were both so wrapped into, sold out on, believed in, bought into God, his beauty, his glory, his loveliness. That is what their friendship was about. So that's how something like Jonathan sees David kill Goliath. And it says immediately the soul of Jonathan was knit or tied, bound up with, tangled up in the soul of David. That's how it happened so fast. They were already chasing after the same God. And once they met each other, in a way, it was love at first sight. The way you've met friends before, and you start talking to them, and you're like, you too? You too? You too? This is crazy. We're like the same person, which means I'm going to love you better. <laughs> it's the same with Jonathan and David. That's how their relationship got kicked off. And Jonathan, because he was so tuned in to the Lord, was willing to disadvantage himself. 
was willing to defer glory, defer power, defer good things so that David could benefit. And he did it because he trusted that the Lord will not abandon me. Even if I give up all that I have, he will have my back too. David and Jonathan had a son in the solar system of their friendship. And so the solar system of their friendship was ordered. It was about something other than just, I love you, bro. I love you too, bro. They were about something. So begs the question, what do your friendships revolve around? Think about your best friends, whatever, whoever your closest friends are, whoever you talk to the most, whoever you trust the most. Or if you feel like you're not at a place right now, some of you are brand new to NMSU, to Las Cruces. You, don't, you would give anything to have a friend like that. Think about the kind of friend you want. And the question stands, what kind of friendship, what do your friendships revolve around? They could revolve around music. We both like to uh, play guitar. We both like to run. We both like this show. We're both from this town or whatever. But let's push a little bit more deep than that and ask, what could your friendships revolve around? Um, Those are legitimate things. I'm not bashing hobbies. I have a lot of friends who all that we share in common is we both like to woodwork or we both are like politics or something. But let's push a little beyond that into what kind of friends should you be looking for and what, how should you be looking to cultivate the close friendships you already have with your buddies. Here's a point. If your friendship is rooted in anything other than Jesus and what he's doing in your lives, expect that friendship to ebb and flow over time. I'm not saying that that's bad. I'm saying expect it To sometimes be awesome, sometimes be nowhere, and expect that it will likely have an expiration date on it. Here's why. I'm 15 years, geez, removed from my freshman year of college. So that's 15 years of me changing and 15 years of all my friends changing. You're going to be a very different person in 15 years than you are now. So if your closest friendships are built around hobbies and interests, I used to work out every day. I used to go camping probably twice a month. Um, I used to read Puritan theologians all the time. I used to be super plugged into different TV shows. I used to have different hobbies. And now none of those things are true about me anymore. Not because I don't like them. Partly because I'm married with a a, a baby who was eating dirt yesterday and splashing in the toilet (laughs) while I was babysitting him. Or, I'm sorry, watching our child, not babysitting. (laughs) Life has changed for me. So what has happened to my friendships with all the guys I used to go camping with, working out with, going to see these movies with? I still like them. But can you see how our friendships have kind of, there was an expiration date on those friendships. If your friendship is revolving around anything other than Jesus, the eternal one, who is the same tomorrow as he is today, who will still be loving you, pursuing you, working in you, changing you, correcting you tomorrow just like he is today. If it's of anything else other than him, there's an expiration date on those friendships. Likely. Sometimes there's exceptions to these. But that's, that, that will be most of your experiences as you graduate and move on uh, beyond college. But if you're a Christian, there is an unchanging, sturdy rock and a reality that will always be true for you. God will be faithful to you. Sure enough, 15 years later, the people that I call when life falls apart the people that we called from the hospital when Eli was born, the people that we email every now and then with or call or see is Chris and Tuck and Joel and Jonathan and Austin and Ben and Don and Rob. And Anna's got her friends. 
And it is such a blessing to me to know that she has a rock to stand on with her friends too, of Catherine and Bonnie and Trisha and Jory and her sisters. People who know her. Girls who love her and have said, Anna, I love you. And I thankfully was at a church when I was in college with a pastor who was a big enough man to say, Ben, I love you. And my dad, I'm blessed to grow up with a dad who never missed a day to say, Ben, I love you. And I had a grandfather and a mom who said, Ben, I love you. But now I have other friends who say on the phone, I love you. And I get to say to other guys, I love you. And not think it's weird anymore. It is the most fitting thing you could possibly do, Christian, to express your love and your affection for your brothers and your sisters. And you need to be saying it if you're not. Because your friends need to be hearing it. We'll talk at the very end in a few minutes about why that is. But this is what it looks like to have a friendship that has a huge sun in the middle of it that orders everything else in your relationship. The last piece of this first point is you could think, man, Ben just kind of pushed aside all the emotional, intimate parts of friendship. Those are the parts that are the most enjoyable. But I didn't. Intimacy is the result of pursuing the same thing passionately with another person. Intimacy is not low-hanging fruit. It's the top of the tree fruit, and you have to climb to get it. There's false intimacy. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. There's masturbation. There's hooking up. There's looking at all kinds of stuff on the Internet. There's fantasy. That's low-hanging fruit. That's intimacy that any old idiot can pick off the tree and eat. But true intimacy is you've got to climb the tree to get it. You've got to invest to get it. You've got to work to get it. You've got to know and be known to get at it. Um, And that kind of intimacy is exactly what you see binding together David and Jonathan. And it's a result of their commonality, their common love for the Lord. And this is exactly what Jesus told us to expect, right? It's familiar to your ears. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all else shall be added to you. He wasn't kidding. And it even shows up in our emotional life. Seek first his kingdom and the friends will come along with it. Seek friendship. And you'll be lacking those emotions all the time because people will find you clingy and needy. And people will feel like their relationship with you is vacuous and hollow and empty. Pursue Jesus and you get the friends thrown in. Pursue friends for the sake of friendship and you'll miss friendship and you'll likely miss God as well. But as good as as those emotions are that I have with the people whose names I just mentioned, that Anna has with her friends, that I have with many of you, Emotions can't carry the weight of your relationship going forward. So this is the second point, that the glue of friendship is covenant. If intimate emotions, they're kind of like the icing of a relationship. But icing is for eating. It tastes sweet. It brings joy to your heart. But icing can't hold something together. Only glue can. The glue that holds relationships, marriages, our relationship with God together is a word called covenant. There's a guy named Dale Ralph Davies who's a commentator on this passage. He said, how do you spell covenant? S-E-C-U-R-I-T-Y. Security. Making a covenant with someone is making a promise with them before you have any idea what's going to happen. That's what we call marriage vows. That's why we head, that's why we kind of say in parentheses, I will love you, not I do love you. We don't express our feelings at the altar. We express our promises at the altar. 
We're saying, I am in the dark. I have no clue what our financial situation is going to be. I have no idea whether you're going to be sick and get cancer and I'm going to be married for a year and a widow the rest of my life or if we're going to live happily ever after. I don't know if our kids are going to be rebellious or well-behaved. I don't know if I'm going to lose my job 30 years in and we're going to be poor. I don't know anything about the future, but I promise I'll be there when any of that stuff happens. I promise I won't leave when everything else leaves you. That's what a covenant is. Do you want a friendship that is covenantal? Or do you want a friendship that is based on your friend's mood that morning? Or their emotional feelings towards you that week based on what you've done to them? Or they're people-pleasing and whether or not you're pleasing them or they feel like they're pleasing you that week. Which is sturdier? Which should you be building your closest friendships in this life on? The sand of feelings or the rock of a covenant, of a promise made in the dark that I will be there? Again, you might be thinking right now, I want to catch those of you who are saying, man, he's taking the emotion out of the relationship. The manse has gone from the bromance. What's happening? This is kind of like a contractual business relationship now, making promises to each other. But the exact opposite is true. Every time you see here this just shocking intimacy between David and Jonathan or other people in Scripture like Ruth and Naomi that we'll look at in a second, the reason it's there is because they knew the other person had their back and would be there come hell or high water. They didn't worry. David didn't worry, is Jonathan going to have my back when the king, his dad, is, has put out a hit on my life as we just read about? Jonathan didn't worry if when David got power, he was going to say, hey, new administration, my people are in. Get rid of this guy and anything that stinks of his father. They knew and trusted that the other one had their back. It was love as well. It was love that made them want to make the covenant. They loved each other first. And because they loved each other, because of that common pursuit, they made promises to each other. They were big boys in their relationship. They didn't leave it to flakiness or, we'll hang out when I have time. They made promises to be at a certain place at a certain time in a future they didn't know. And that's what solidified and glued together uh, their relationship um, to one another. You want that kind of relationship. I know you do. You crave it. And so do I. Many of us have it to varying degrees, and it's a joy in our lives. For those of you who are dating, the reason dating feels so insecure is dating is so insecure. (laughs) Dating, by definition, is insecured, unsecured. There is nothing securing the relationship. The door is always cracked open. Either party can exit at the drop of a hat. They wake up and don't like you that day, they get to leave. And you need to let them leave. We'll talk about this in a few weeks. You You should have no expectations of your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You're still friends in the eyes of God. Not anything special. The reason it feels so insecure and so fragile to be dating is because it's so fragile and insecure to date. Ask Mason and Emily and ask Tessa and Chris if life is better now that they've made promises to each other. An engaged couple and a married couple. I'll tell you, life is so much better when by grace, God closes that exit door and locks it and boards it up. Because then you're committed. 
then love has a place to thrive and to grow because you're not always looking at the exit door. Man, things are getting really hard. Man, I'm just, this is not emotionally satisfying at the moment. I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to back away. When God, through covenant, through promise, locks the door, locks you inside with that friend or that fiance or that husband or wife, you are free to love for the first time. Covenant is a safe place for relationships to grow, for friendships to deepen, because you're not worried if they're going to run or if they're going to be there down the road. It's a place that these grow and thrive, and it's a place where we make promises to each other. Naomi and Ruth, if you want a female parallel to the David and Jonathan relationship, the book right before this in the Bible, short little book called Ruth. Naomi and Ruth, I'll spare you the context because it would take too long, but Naomi and Ruth are basically are two ladies. One is young, one is old. She's the, the daughter-in-law of the older woman. Ruth is a younger one. And Ruth says to her mother-in-law, see, or uh, sorry, Naomi, the mom, says to her daughter-in-law, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Go with her. Don't, don't concern yourself with me. I'm an old lady. Go do your thing. This is Ruth's response. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. That is a real life example from two ladies' lives who made promises to each other to be there, to stay there, and to invest in each other. Uh, come whatever may, Ruth and Naomi. What would it look like real quick before we end if our relationships became more covenantal with each other? You don't have space. You're a human being. You don't have time. You don't have, like, you're, you're not omnipresent. You're in one place at one time. You can't have 100 best friends. You can probably have, I don't know, there's no magic number, three or four or 10 maybe. Um, so I'm not talking, this isn't last week's sermon where we're to be a friend to everybody. These are, these are the people that you share a lot in common with. They know you, you know them, you want to get to know them better. What could your relationship look like if it were more covenantal? At the very least, we start making promises to each other. And we start repenting and asking for forgiveness when we inevitably break those promises. We start saying to each other, hey dude, I got your back. Like, I'm committed to you. I'm going to ask you hard questions when you need to be asked hard questions, but I'm going to come visit you when you need to be visited. I'm going to encourage you when you need to be encouraged. Or you commit to another girl. And you say, we're going to get to know each other. I don't know what, I don't know what the future is going to bring, but I love you. And I'm going to do love to you instead of just saying I feel love for you. That's what a covenantal relationship with people in the room might look like. It'll cost you something. Because covenant requires commitment, which requires repenting from probably the preeminent college sin of flakiness, which is uh, the idolatry of options. I always want options. I never want to be committed. I never want to be tied down to having to say, yes, I committed to this. You should expect something from me. This gives you an opportunity to leave that behind and to begin to tell people, yes, you can expect something of me. You can count on me. Covenant requires commitment. Covenant requires intentionality. Do you have a game plan for your best friends and your relationships? Do you have a strategy? 
Do you get annoyed? You should get annoyed when you meet together with your closest friends and you talk about nothing instead of talking about things that matter. Do you have a plan? Do you have a strategy? Do you have a, 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 a kind of a way forward for how you want to grow in relationship with these friends? Covenantal relationship requires sacrifice. Jonathan laid aside everything for the sake of his friend, David. What have you laid aside for the sake of a friend? I'm assuming so many of you have. I've seen you. I've seen what you've laid aside for the sake of loving your friends. And it's compelling. What have you laid aside for the sake of your friends? Anything precious? And the last thing is covenantal relationships bring intimacy. Once again, Jonathan gets killed in battle right after this stuff happens. David is a musician. He's a songwriter. That's what the songs are. David writes a song to his friend who's been killed on the battlefield. And it is shocking too in its intimacy of how much he loved his brother. David writes in 2 Samuel 1, Oh, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies. Jonathan lies. Slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary. Surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen. Oh, how the weapons of war have perished. This is a friend undone by the death of his brother, Jonathan. This is a man unashamed who doesn't giggle when he says, Jonathan, your love for me and my love for you surpassed that of a woman. The Bible's not captive to the same things we are. It shows us a way forward, a resurrection way forward to have good, solid relationships with other guys and other girls. The last point ends on Jesus. The goal of relationships isn't relationship. The goal of friendship isn't friendship. The goal of friendship is showing forth Christ. If you read ahead a few chapters here, Jonathan and David start talking to each other and we get to be a fly in the wall. And when they talk about their relationship and their friendship, they are almost becoming interchangeable talking about the way God has loved them and the way they love each other. The pronouns are all over the place. One second they're saying, the Lord, his steadfast faithfulness and love, the way the Lord has loved me, And then the next second, they're saying, the way you have loved me, the way I love you, it's all wrapped up and tangled up in each other. And that's by design. Your deepest and closest friendships, particularly with other believers, are there to show you Christ, your true covenantal friend. The Bible isn't about friendship techniques, nor is the Bible about dating techniques or how to have a better sex life or a better marriage one day or how to be a better student or how to have more emotional peace. The Bible's not about any of that. The Bible is about Jesus Christ and what he has done on your behalf freely and what he calls you to do in response. That's what the Bible and only what the Bible is about. And so we can't leave saying, David's a great example of the kind of friend I should be. You have to leave seeing Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the true friend that that David and Jonathan were mere shadows of. Jesus as the covenantal lover, the one who has made promises to his people. Why? Because he loved his people. Why did he love his people? Because he chose to love his people. And because he made that promise, even though he did know the future, he followed through on it. And he said, on that day where everything else falls away, when even the love of the Father falls away, Because I take your sins on me, 
I will be there for you. He almost said it literally, dying on the cross. He's thinking of his people. Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. Jesus says to you, when everything else falls away, I will have your back. I will advocate for you. I will sacrifice for you. I am the brother who will lay down my life for you. I am the friend you can count on. I am the predictable one who will be there. I am the one who secures your life so that you can grow and thrive. That is what Jesus looks like as the true friend. Let's pray to him that he would make us safe to learn how to love the way he loves us now and will love us tomorrow. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you do love us that way today and you will love us that way tomorrow. We thank you that you are a God who has made promises to your people. You are not a willy-nilly adolescent God who feels one way one morning and you're like drunk on love for us, but the next morning you're, you're over us. You say every morning we wake up to fresh mercy. So I pray whether people in here have known you or do not know you, I pray that you tonight would open eyes, that we would see you as the faithful friend, the intimate lover of our souls that you might make us into lovers of others. We ask this in your name. Amen.